Today, I'm airing an interview with the multi-talented Sharon Leslie Orenstein. And you will hear at the very beginning of this interview my description of the dozens of skills, talents, and abilities that Sharon has. And so in this interview, she's going to describe where she started her life, what she thought she was going to do, what her earliest interests were, and how that evolved into the amazing things that she can do and has done. And this interview will culminate with Sharon describing her most current project, the opera which she and her husband David have written and which is about to have a workshop production at the very prestigious Siegel Music Colony. So here now is the extraordinary Sharon Leslie Orenstein. I am here with the incredibly multi-talented Sharon Leslie. I, I was thinking actually before we did this of all of the things that you do. <laughs> you know? And I was thinking, well, I'll say, you know, I'll say she's an actor and she's a songwriter and she's a lyricist and she's a singer and she's a director and she's a playwright and she's a teacher. And she's a teacher, right. And, and a mom. And a mom, yes, yes. And a producer. Yes. And a costume. Yes, um, I can do that too. Right, right. right. Yes, right, yes. Right. So um, I was thinking, uh, why don't we start out with you just talking a little bit about how you came to this, what the early, you know, your early experiences were like, what you made you want to do any of this and where it started and who you what you thought you wanted to do? Well, when I grew up, I grew up in uh, a, a suburb of Louisville, Kentucky called Anchorage. And Anchorage um, is a very interesting suburb at the time because there were some uh, women who had gotten together years before my family moved there, and they created what was known as the Anchorage Children's Theater Press. Hmm. So there was a lot of children's theater going on in Anchorage. I grew up, I remember doing my first big show Alice in Wonderland in fourth grade and this was children's theater uh, at least at the time that I was doing it that was done by children for children rather than by adults for children so um, we would all audition and I remember my first big audition I got a call back to be considered as Alice oh in Alice in Wonderland. I was, I was shocked. My mother was flabbergasted. My sisters were jealous. <laughs> and, I, you know, I really think I was too young to handle that role. It went to someone in the sixth grade. Um, but it was a wonderful experience. And from then on, I just started doing lots of different children's theater all the way through high school. I did original music in two of the shows that were written by ladies in the area. So that kind of got me into doing original work. I went off to college, didn't do theater for two years, found I was missing it horribly. My soul was dying. So I went back to the University of Louisville and got my degree in the theater. You know, I, I just want to stop you. What made you go to that first audition? Was it your idea? Was it your mom's? I think it was my mother's idea. But I was already getting solos. In kindergarten. Uh, singing. Singing. Ah, uh, yes, Solo yes, singing. Yes, yes. Well, okay, so now you're out of college, and? Well, let's go back a little bit. Okay. As I'm in college, 
Um, I've done a lot of performing, and I, I always thought I wanted to be a singer. In fact, I remember telling my mother before I even started college that I wanted to be a singer. And she looked at me and she says, oh, what kind of singer? I said, well, yeah, I think I'd like to play Las Vegas. And she looked at me like I was horrifying, oh. that just that kind of ambition was just not the kind of thing you did. Yeah. Well, you know, that's the way to make money. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but she wasn't into that. So um, I did, I did um, take some of the entrance audition type stuff. Uh, and I, I got scared off of that kind of a, um, a major because I didn't have, even though I played the piano, mm -hmm. I didn't have the music theory background and mm -hmm. all that stuff. So I, I thought, I think I'm getting in over my head. Mm -hmm. So I didn't do it. And then when I, uh, I actually married my first husband and then went back to college and it was either become an engineer mm -hmm. Or go into the theater. Oh my goodness. And guess what? <laughs> <laughs> Although I do have the engineering gene, which runs in my family, which helps me in many ways oh in this artistic field. Mm -hmm. But not to be an engineer is marvelous. <laughs> it occurs to me that it might have been different if your mother had encouraged you. Oh, it would have been. Absolutely. I, you know, no, I never got that from either of my parents. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, uh, which was too bad, because I was, I mean... It, since we're talking about me, yeah. <laughs> um, yes. I was actually very athletically gifted, mm -hmm. and I was a springboard diver. Wow. Uh, my father played professional baseball, um, semi-professional basketball, played football. He was a marvelous athlete, but my mother never encouraged my athletic ambitions because I remember her once saying to me, women with muscles are ugly. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yes. That was my mother. Wow. So she didn't encourage me in the two areas that I really had tremendous yeah. gifts in sports or in singing and performing, yeah. either of those. So yeah, I always did well in the sciences and math and chemistry and all those kinds of things, uh, but I just couldn't see myself doing that for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. So I loved the theater, and since I was married at the time, I thought, well... You know, my husband's successful. I don't need to worry about making money all the time. Right. So, sure, let's go into the theater. Mm -hmm. And not only let's go into the theater, since we're not worried about making money, we're not going to go into the educational aspect of the theater. We're not going to go and have the fallback, oh, well, you can always become an elementary school teacher and do it on the side. Mm -hmm. Oh, no. <laughs> I made sure that it was my full profession because I did not wish to make that choice. And um, that forced me into not taking the side routes. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, and I want you to talk about all of the things you've done. Okay, well, actually, I went to school thinking I was going to be a director. I'm a master's degree dropout in directing. And that's the direction I thought that my career would take. Well, when I left my first husband, I moved down here to Florida and started getting hired and cast in all kinds of singing positions, which takes me back to my original ambition to be a singer. So I was cast in operettas, and I was cast in musicals, and I did tours of The Merry Widow. And in the midst of all of that, I was a waitress, and I worked at a bakery, and I worked for a construction company, and I worked in box offices, mm -hmm. and all kinds of different jobs to right. keep the money coming in while I'm doing my art thing. I met David, and 
we got married, and he's a pianist. We never married with the intention of performing together, but after we had two children, uh, someone said, well, why don't you do a concert together? So we did a concert together, and we made money. So we started doing concert work together, and David's a great arranger, so we would create these uh, special musical presentations of songs that everybody knew, but they would sound differently. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we did all that concert work. That took us to creating the cabaret show. That took us to moving to Toronto because we were promised a job doing our cabaret show up in Toronto for, you know, maybe $2,000 a week. Mm -hmm. It was damn good money. And we thought to go to Toronto because we wanted to move to a big city but a place that would be safe to have our kids. So we moved to Toronto, I work in a department store, and we, we did a lot of shows up there. We had an agent in Toronto, we played the Canadian National Exhibition, we were featured at the Plaza Hotel when it was there. Uh, David played all the four-star hotels up there himself as solo pianist. We actually did really, really well, but not well enough to survive. That career took us up to the Catskills, Mm -hmm. so we ended up coming back home. And then when you came back to Florida, you played everywhere. We played everywhere. everywhere. We played all over Florida. We played the east coast of Florida. Mm -hmm. We had an agent on the east coast. We have an agent on this coast. When did you write the first theater piece? 94. I love Canada, and it was kind of heartbreaking to come back, but... Uh, David was just inspired because when you're up there, you're an American. So you get labeled and everybody thinks you're a cowboy. So he wrote uh, a Western ballet and so much of his music sounded like a popular song that I said to him, you know, these just sound like pop songs. He said, well, why don't you write lyrics to them? Me? You know? (laughs) And so that was the first time I'd written lyrics to something that he had written. So after that, that was the summer of 93, while we were up working Mm -hmm. in the Catskills. So when we're up at that resort, uh, the workday really doesn't start for him till 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and I work part-time, whatever I'm doing. Uh, So we have a lot of extra time to create. So that was the summer I thought, well, you know, I I wanted to write Elizabeth of Russia Mm -hmm. since before I met my husband. I found the story. And uh, so we got married in 80, so that would have been 14 years after we were married that I finally got the courage to begin writing it. So when we were up there, the good news was the libraries up there have marvelous books that I couldn't find in any libraries really in this area. So I went back and redid the research and re-thought out the story and got more information on all the characters. And then the summer of 94, was my first draft of what is our musical, uh, Elizabeth of Russia, about the daughter of Peter the Great. Before Gandhi, there was Elizabeth of Russia, the beautiful, rebellious daughter of Tsar Peter the Great, who leads a nonviolent overthrow of what essentially is a foreign regime ruling Russia to, to, in order to save herself her country, and her peasant lover. (laughs) (laughs) It's a terrific story, and it's a terrific show. It is. It's a really good show. It's a really good show. Are are you doing it anywhere now? 
Oh, well, we, we, uh, we did it once in Sarasota. We did it once in St. Petersburg as staged readings. Okay, so at, was uh, Golda after that? Golda was after that. So, so we wrote a musical on the life of Golda Meir. Mm-hmm. After doing Elizabeth of Russia, I, I would look around at what was being written. And you hear all the older actresses complaining, nothing's written for me. <laughs> I have no roles left. <laughs> Not only do we need roles, I think we as women need role models Mm -hmm. that are being written about in a theatrical form where the woman isn't just the romantic sidekick of the hero. Right. Now, of course, that has changed. Roles are being written. Mm -hmm. But when I was originally thinking of this, like in 94, that wasn't true. So David had written a bunch of melodies that were Israeli-sounding. And I thought, well, we might have do one with an Israeli theme just because he's got all this wonderful <laughs> music. Uh, and I thought, well, the only person I know I can write of is Golda Meir. And I looked at the material. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, well, forget this. There's no musical in this material. <laughs> and I put it aside for a year. And I thought, I, it doesn't sing. Mm. And then after a year... My mind, I guess, sifted it through, and I went, oh, yeah. you know, there is a musical And here. you found the story there, absolutely. Yeah, so we, we had a place that was going to produce that and kind of commissioned it for us, and uh, so we wrote our Golda. Mm-hmm. And when I was writing this, I knew American audiences would not get it. The uh, terrorist situation that the Israelis live with on a daily basis, they wouldn't get what Golda lived. American audiences just can't imagine their own homes being in danger. So when we played it, it begins with a pogrom in Russia, and all kinds of people. What's a pogrom? They'd oh never heard. I know. They'd never even heard the word pogrom. They had no idea that they happened. They were just astounded. And I was astounded to learn oh a level God. of ignorance. And then, just the general tone of the audience was that... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But after 9-11 happened, I went, ah, now Americans might get this story. Yeah. Uh, it's a powerful story. She was an incredible woman. Just doing the research on Golda Meir in many ways kind of changed my life. Her strength, her courage, her sense of purpose. And she had such a moral compass. And she lived a very uh, unconventional life. She just did so many amazingly brave things. So we did Golda. David always says, well, who's another person you want to write about? And I said, well, you know, I always kind of felt Cleopatra was pretty intriguing, but she's been done. And she hasn't always been done very successfully. So, so then he brought back this book on Cleopatra. So I read it, and there was a story about her, this part in her life. Mm-hmm. Nobody's really made anything big about And nobody knows so much about Cleopatra. And you do the research on Cleopatra, and you go, oh, my God. You know, this is, was an amazing woman. We don't have a lot of written material about her, but so much that we think she is, she wasn't. Mm-hmm. So I did the research on Cleopatra, and I thought, oh, yeah, let's do this story. It takes place right after Mark Antony has killed himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, in looking at the story, I said to David, you know, David, I think this needs to be an opera. Mm-hmm. And David goes, what? What? <laughs> 
yeah, this has to be an opera. This one has to be sung all the way through. And, and you know, because she dies at the end. That's not where we end it, so it doesn't end like standard opera. Mm-hmm. It ends with more of a Broadway feel. Um, but it, the, the story just calls for singing. Mm-hmm. I just didn't hear any spoken dialogue in this, in this uh, instance. So he's, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and as we continued the writing process, um, he, he said, you know, I kind of like this. Uh-huh. And by the end of writing it, he mm-hmm. said, this was really, I, I like doing this. Mm-hmm. I, I'm gonna, I want to do another one. Wow. I want to write another opera. I, I really like this. So he went 180 degrees from uh, disliking even the concept of writing opera, and I'd have to drag him to go see operas, to really enjoying um, the creative aspect of tying all the pieces together and having those wonderful transitions with the uh, recitative and stuff mm-hmm. that would happen. Uh, he he really loved writing it. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, and I I have to give credit. I just have to. When we were going, when we were starting out writing this, we had a commitment from an opera company in Saint Petersburg to produce it. Well, they pulled out on that commitment, and I was heartbroken. But one of the ladies who was on the board of that company at the time, Claudia Johnson, came to me and she said, you know. I made a commitment to this opera, and I gave you my word that I would support its creation. So I want you to write this, and I'm going to do everything I can to help you get this produced. Right. And she did. So, uh, so we got it produced in uh, St. Petersburg. Then uh, it was produced again uh, in Sarasota. and. Um, it only takes seven people, and, and you've and seen it. And I've seen it. It's absolutely wonderful. And you are it. I am? Yes. What, you mean Cleopatra? Yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I loved, I didn't think I would like playing her. Oh, my God. Because I loved Elizabeth, and I always thought of myself as Elizabeth, and, oh, someone else could be. But I did Cleopatra, uh, and, and as an artist, the easiest thing if you've been the creator, is just to do it yourself the first time, because you don't have to teach it to anybody. Uh, I even directed it the first time. Yes, I know. Which, which was probably too much. But, and the second time, I had a co-director, and eventually he took over all the directing, which, which was wonderful. But, it, you know, for a major role, to bring someone in and do it, it was just kind of easier, since I knew it, I could do it, I didn't have to teach it to anybody, and we could get it going the best and the, the quickest. Mm-hmm. But I loved playing Cleopatra. Yeah, and you were wonderful. Thank you. And it's not easy. It. No. It is not easy. I'm writing about very extraordinary women for women to look at and play and et cetera, et cetera. It's very hard to cast. Actresses are used to playing the... That thing. <laughs> yeah, the smiley, romantic, right. aren't I cute, right. look at me, aren't I nice right. type of role uh, or a character role. These require um, a lot of strength, mm-hmm. and women aren't used to demonstrating strength. Mm-hmm. They are reluctant to show that on the stage, and that's the greatest difficulty I have in filling those roles. Okay, so I know that you are preparing 
for a workshop production in September at the Siegel Music Colony mm -hmm. in Scroon Lake, New York. Yes. And this is going to be a workshop production of your opera, Patra. Yes. And that is a diminution of Cleopatra. Yes. Yes. Okay, good. So I want you to tell me how this came about, how it happened, and talk about the writing of it and all that, okay? Okay, cool. Yeah. I met a gentleman through my teaching who happens to be on the board of directors of the Siegel Music Colony. Mm -hmm. And uh, in my teaching, I talked about how I write and have written operas. And uh, he said, well, why don't you submit it to the Siegel Music Colony? I put it off for a year because of various personal reasons. And then he emailed me again to look into it. And I thought, okay, maybe now is the time to see if this will happen. So, well, now, you hadn't written it yet. No. So what did you have to submit? I didn't. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So, so what I had written was Octavian and Cleopatra. Right. So he knew I had that opera, and he knew I had a children's opera. So I did a letter of inquiry to the artistic director, Darren Woods, and said, is this the kind of thing that would be interesting to you? Because it's a lot of work. It's a <laughs> tremendous amount of work to do this. And if they weren't even going to be interested, or there was no room, or they're, they're, they were already booked years ahead, right. I, I thought, you know, I, I, then I'm off the hook. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right, yeah. got it. And then he said, um, well, yeah, we'd be very interested. I thought, okay. Mm -hmm. So that was like in March, and so by the end of May or April, I, I was open, my calendar was open to start to doing the rewrite. So I started doing the rewrite, and we made plans to go up and visit him. So in July... Uh, I had the first act rewritten and redone. Mm -hmm. I had made six recordings of some of the music mm -hmm. so I could show it to him. But I was not very informed about Siegel Music Colony. So I wanted to see what it was like, what their singers were like, who I was going to be submitting to. And so we went up and we had a meeting and I pitched the show. He liked what he heard mm -hmm. very much. So I thought, well, that's encouraging. <laughs> So he said, this is exactly the kind of thing where opera is going right now. Not quite Broadway, not the heavy opera, sort of in between a little, um, and I call it an opera comique, but it's a little more Broadway sounding than 20th century opera, which has been very atonal. So I kept writing. It took me <laughs> 11 months, but he liked everything that I had submitted so much by October he said we were in. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I kept writing and writing. Well, you were in, but you still had a lot of work to do. I still had to finish it. <laughs> yeah, right. So I pretty much had it done by the end of January. But I didn't have to submit a rehearsal-ready score until March. So by the beginning of March, I had a real rehearsal-ready piano vocal score, the libretto, everything done in finale notation, and uh, it looked pretty darn good. It's gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> so I sent it up, and they've got it, and uh, the date was set as, as um, September 1st through the 7th with one public performance 
on the 7th. From the 1st to the 7th is rehearsals? Yeah, rehearsals and the workshop and, and getting it on its feet because it's going to be, there. the singers are going to come, it's so much different from how I'm used to working. Uh, the singers are going to come in with the piece memorized. They will have one music rehearsal. Then they go right into blocking and staging rehearsals and there will be minimal costumes and set and it'll be on its feet in a memorized version within a week. Oh my God. Yeah. I'm so excited. You know, it's amazing. You sent them the the full rehearsal to, so that the singers have. Yeah, the singers right? have it. The singers have it and they're all, you know. Learning it. They're learning it and they do what opera singers do. They come in with their part memorized and then they go to rehearsal. Wow. Oh yeah, that's how. So there's no rehearsal on book. No. No, amazing. Very different from the theater. Uh, although I have heard that, you know, this goes on a lot in New York, that people come in with it memorized. Yeah, well, who, th things are so expensive now, they can't afford the extra time for rehearsal time if they can get away with it, right? Yeah. 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 Okay, so do you want to tell us just a little bit about the story? Patra is about the last days of Cleopatra and how her love changes the rather villainous Octavian, who was general and consul of Rome, and who had just defeated Antony and Cleopatra. So her love in general for her children, how he discovers her love for Antony, how she really was a loving person uh, and a really fine leader, how she changes him into a better man. Wow. And so she, in my version, her death is not the expected legendary death with the asp and I'm so sorry, I'm <laughs> dying for love. It because my, you know, Antony has is now gone. It is a warrior's death. Mm -hmm. It is a woman making a choice to take her own life in order to save the lives of others. Ooh. Which is her children wow. primarily. And to remain alive puts her children in danger and possibly even Octavian, even though he propose, he does propose to her. Mm -hmm. He falls in love with her and he proposes and he proposes marriage, but she realizes that she has essentially not been the cause, but two very great men died because they were in love with her, Julius Caesar and Mark Antony. And Rome is not ready yet, they don't think, for an emperor or a monarch or someone of her stature to be in the Republic of Rome. Now, yes, eventually Octavian becomes emperor of Rome, but it takes a while. Mm -hmm. um, and it may not have happened if she had been alive. Ah, so this is yet another strong woman in the Sharon Leslie Orenstein pantheon of, of strong women, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. What people are saying nowadays is essentially, uh, especially African Americans and Hispanics, that if they don't see them on the stage, yeah. how can they see what they can become? You know, it's, it's like seeing is believing. It's it, And for me, it was women have successfully ruled countries, but we don't see it in this country. Now, it's happening all over the world, but it doesn't happen a lot, and it doesn't happen often. Right. But I began writing these stories 20 years ago. I know. 20 I... years ago, 
a long time ago. And I still feel that it's important for young girls to see that they can be in leadership positions, they can do well in those positions, and to have stories about women who did do that. Yeah. So besides the fact it gives good roles to women. Yes, God, yes. <laughs> and women have been complaining for years, where are the good roles? How come I'm just this sort of person on the side of the man? Well, here is a situation where that wasn't true. And um, that's why I write about it. It's great. Okay, so now when one is going to have a workshop production, one quite often has to fund it. Yeah. So you have to fund it. I do. So you have a GoFundMe page, right? And you have to raise... $25,000. $25,000. This happens to a lot of people who create musical works. Musical works as opposed to like a straight play or something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, not totally across the board, but in a lot of areas in this country. In order to get your show mounted, you, the person, the creator, has to find the money to get it mounted. Whether it's in Michigan or in New York City with the New York City Music Theater Festival or with this opera production. And uh, eventually, if you put on a production somewhere, you're going to have to raise the money for it somehow anyway. Yes. So it's um, just the way of the world. Congratulations, Sharon. And I know that you're going to raise the money and it's going to be a huge success. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome. Well, there you have it. A life extraordinarily lived. A life in which she has explored everything which interested her, compelled her, called her, turned her on, and she has been fearless in pursuing all of the the talents that she was born with. And the current project, her opera comique, a blend of Broadway and opera, brings so much of what Sharon knows to fruition. And if you read the blurb that I sent out, Along with this interview, then you saw how you too can help support this by going to the GoFundMe page and helping this become a reality.